The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. We got a real simple plan. One me and one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. Semifinal week for the college football playoff is finally here. Quarterback transfers continue to abound. And what can you really believe about those tampering rumors? This is the College Game Day podcast for the day after Christmas, December 26th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here. So, Pete, we've got to start with what the people are most interested in. Young Teddy on Christmas morning. Best moment there for you as as a relatively new dad. So many great moments. Uh, Teddy's uh, Teddy's just ten months old now, and I really had no idea what was going on. Um, other than we put up a tree Christmas morning because he's a little bit of a terror right now, and we didn't want him to rip the tree down. So, but he ended up really liking the tree. He just kind of sat. We have a little like one step in our condo near there. And he kind of sat there and watched Kate put the tree together and kind of like just enjoyed it. And he got more Elmo themed things than you can ever imagine existed in life. Reese. He got an Elmo towel. He probably got 10 Elmo books. He got Sesame street figurines, Elmo Grover, cookie monster, Oscar, et cetera, et cetera. And if there is something branded to or tied to the little red monster Elmo, Teddy Thamel is now the proud owner. So no, but he was he was happy, man. It was just like he, you know, he's at the age he liked the wrapping paper as much as the presents a little bit, but he does he does really like books. And so he just like you show him an Elmo book, he's like, ah, and he gets this little like giddy smile on his face. So yeah. It, we were blessed. It was it was an awesome uh, awesome Christmas of the Tedster. So how, how do you think young Teddy would react? If he found out, let's say, um, oh, I don't know. I'm, let's say that the Buggles or somebody or uh, Blues Clues, if such a thing still exists, were they were tampering with Elmo to try to get him to transfer <laughs> and, and change shows. Would that, Netflix, would that was, Netflix was coming in and trying to get in PBS's business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah something like that. Netflix was coming in and saying, look, we're going to start a show and you're not just going to be a piece of it, Elmo. We're going to build the entire show around you. And by the way, you think there's a lot of Elmo-themed merchandise now? Wait till you see what the NIL has for you coming this way. What what would what would you think of? What would Teddy think of that? What is Elmo's NIL value? An existential question. We could do a whole off-season series on. Um, I think Teddy's fidelity would be to Elmo. I think he would he would follow Elmo to whatever show and whatever channel. I mean, he doesn't even like the five seconds on YouTube that because we don't pay to skip the ads. Mm-hmm. If he's sitting there watching and the the five second ads come up, he's like ah, he like, <laughs> like he is he is having none of it, none of it. So that just means Teddy's wise and mature beyond his years because I think we all do that, don't we? Yes. You know, it's yeah. funny how I will I will tolerate ads on linear television. But they infuriate me, and I hope I don't get in trouble with our bosses here. They infuriate me even on our own website when I'm trying to watch a video and the ad comes up first. And they're shorter, typically, and you have the ability to skip them. But I I guess this probably speaks to my age. I find them on my laptop or in any streaming. I find them infuriating. Linear TV, I, I deal with it. Maybe it's because I can flip the channel. 
you know, or something. I love him, Reese, because you know what, man, Teddy's Teddy's ten months old, so we got we got Syracuse to pay for in eighteen years. So let those ads flow. <laughs> I, I would I would say this: they don't infuriate me if I'm in them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, uh, what did you think? I brought that up as a as a clunky segue into the whole quarterback transfer uh, tampering. Drake May, yeah, that didn't really happen. Nobody contacted the Mays, but then there was sort of that undertone of, yeah, it was sort of out there anyway, you know, um, maybe through his reps or something like that, or people casting a line out to test the waters. What do you make of where of where we are right now in terms in terms of that? How much of this is real, and how much of it becomes urban legend and exaggerated and hyperbolic in terms of the uh, amount? of tampering on rosters and the and the monetary value of things being tossed around. So I'm going to tell a story to answer that question, Reese. Um, a story I'm not sure I can tell. So those are usually the best stories. Oh, those are the uh, best ones, yeah. So it's 15, 18 years ago. And remember John Brady, the legendary LSU basketball player? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he is at an AAU event. He's sitting with Billy Donovan, who's like the young coach at Florida at the time. Just kind of got there. Billy was shaking things up. And there was a prospect they were all there to watch. And it was one of those like really good Mississippi players might've been Jonathan Bender, but it was, Mm -hmm. there was like three or four one and dones out of Mississippi that the South at the time. And um, guy rolls into the AAU event and he's got his guys with him and, you know, everybody's kind of like watching. It's a show. And I'm sure you've been to those times of tournaments over the years when the star shows up and Brady looks around. He's like, dang, Billy. I don't even know what you got to pay. <laughs> <laughs> now that story is like ninth hand 20 years later, but like the, 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 the story is brought up for a, uh, for a purpose. The story is brought up to say like these types of transactions, alleged, non-alleged myth, mythologized have been going on for decades yeah. and decades and decades. And they will go on for decades and decades and decades. And there will always, when you have a billion dollar industry, there is always going to be some sort of premium on the talent. And there always was as the federal ba- basketball investigation, which has been a failure enforcement wise. But actually, if you look back at it, it was pretty illuminating to how the stuff actually worked. Mm-hmm. You were like, mm-hmm. okay, how did this black market work? And you listened to the court transcripts and you studied what happened. It was like, okay, this is this is all right. Creighton really wanted them. Louisville really wanted Brian Bowen. Here's how it happened. Here's how it went mm-hmm. down. Here's who they went through. Here's how they messed up. Um, so that's a long way to say that in the in the Drake May scenario, Drake May has a market, just like Caleb Williams had a market. And in in so I spoke to Drake May a couple of days ago. I think this it was I think it was the morning of the twenty third, and my days are all garbled because of because uh, of the holidays. Um, and like first of all, delightful kid, befitting of your quarterback man crush. By the way, mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to pass this on to you because I know that that will, <laughs> that will still be that will still be raging. He, he was a uh, a thoughtful young man who I think in part just wanted to be like, hey. This is all a little bit crazy. I was never going to leave North Carolina. And if you look at the history of the May family at North Carolina, mm-hmm, Mark right. May was a quarterback there. He was a GA or some sort of position for Mac Brown during Mac's first stint at North Carolina. Drake May's mom went to North Carolina. His brother Luke hit the shot against Kentucky in the 2017 that put him in the Final Four, one of the great shots of school history. His brother Bo is his roommate. He's a walk-on on the basketball team. So 
And there's actually, from a market value perspective, if Luke May goes on, North Carolina's never had a number one pick in the NFL draft, which I think is interesting. I think LT was pretty high, mm-hmm. but he wasn't number one. Um, if you're Luke May and you can be the all-time great offensive player at North Carolina, he ain't never going to be better than LT, right? So mm-hmm. if you can be the all-time great offensive player at North Carolina, the best quarterback in school history, the highest draft pick on the offensive side in school history. There is like, he didn't say this, but there's some value to that. If you come from the gilded Carolina family mm-hmm. and you are, uh, you are in, you know, you are in that, uh, you are from that part of the world and you just are just die hard in the Tar Heel blue. So Drake may was very clear to me that like, he never really thought about leaving the dad, Mark May, uh, said they never had a conversation about it. Now, did those conversations exist around, you know, he acknowledged that, you know, somebody might have texted his high school coach and that his his representatives may have gotten calls, but that's all just sort of normal. That's just, you know, was John Brady talking to a middleman 20 years ago is how that mm-hmm. stuff is going to happen today. And I do think there was a development question with Drake May too. Like, was Carolina in the offense he was running the best place to get him NFL ready? And I do think that the offensive coordinator switch probably gives him a little bit more linear development path to the NFL because they're not going to run that crazy tempo and they're mm-hmm. they're going to evolve from sort of the four verts world that they were that they were in in Phil Longo's offense which was successful but was that the best vehicle to develop him um is sort of a fair schematic question when you look at who he is and what he can become. So he made it very clear to me that he knew that Chip Lindsay developed uh, Nick Mullins at Southern Miss and helped develop Jarrett Stidham at Auburn. So that was sort of front of mind. And give background credit, he put the kid on Zooms with with all the OC candidates, which isn't uh, – I've heard of that happening. Tim Tebow did that when he came mm-hmm. back at Florida. But that's that's rare. It's not unprecedented, but it's rare. Well, I a couple of thoughts come to mind, and this is going to surprise you, I think, uh, being that it is Drake May. And also, I'm let me I'm gonna go ahead and offer the caveat. Mac Brown's won a bunch of games. I've never coached a single uh college football game, nor have I ever run a program. So there is the nice thing that you say that I always say before I say something I don't like. I don't like that. Drake May is going to be there for one more year. And I realize maybe the assistant coach is only going to be there for one more year, too. The head coach needs to run the program. And I'm not saying Mac isn't. He certainly is. But this emphasis on uh, consulting with the players who are going to be out the door in a year or two at most over who you might hire as a coach, it calls to mind. It calls to mind when Arizona decided not to hire Ken Diamantalolo simply because uh, Khalil Tate didn't want him. Because he didn't want, he didn't believe he wouldn't run the option. Now, I think this will work out better than that did. So I'm not making a direct comparison, but I'm saying philosophically, that's a bad idea. Now, maybe, maybe Drake, there is an exception to every rule, and maybe in Matt Brown's judgment, considered judgment, maybe Drake may, in this particular moment in Carolina football history, is worth it. Maybe so. But maybe he also didn't, uh, didn't totally believe that that the maze wouldn't fall spell to the transfer, uh, the siren song of the transfer, which I don't think, I don't know them personally. I know Luke uh, from his basketball days, but uh, you know, I don't know any of the other ones very well. Might've, might've met the dad in passing, but um, 
I don't think they were going anywhere. I do know the grandfather. I, I actually was at an event and spent some time with uh, with the maid grandfather. They're not he's not going anywhere. So I don't, you know, I, I don't see the value or the wisdom, generally speaking. Perhaps Drake may is the exception to the rule, but generally speaking, I don't see uh the wisdom in saying to a you know 20 year old 21 hey uh you know who who should i hire for this million dollar job to help so you? i'm going to counter that point i think this okay. is an interesting debate i'm going to say this mac brown you know p- picked three got right it wasn't like hey who do you want it was these are the three finalists or four i don't remember the number but the, here's the here's the handful a small handful of guys get on the phone with them i don't think that is giving drake may the autonomy to pick the next core. I wasn't suggesting I think, that it yeah. did. No, I think, it's, I, did, I think I it's building buy-in. Process. I think it's building buy-in. If you have a guy who the whole world thinks is going to transfer and you're trying to pull him tight, why don't you say, hey, let's 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 do this together? And it wasn't like like Drake May wanted the the uh, you know the the Amherst College receivers coach. Like, well, what are you going to do next year when Drake May's playing quarterback for the Jets and you hate the well, guy? You have a really good OC. Like that's the thing. No, no, no. You missed the last part of that. What if you don't like the guy? You know what? What if oh. after you know? I mean, you know what I'm yeah. saying. I'm not saying in this particular instance that what Mac did was malfeasance or wrong. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe in this particular instance, it was the right. Thing to do for them in this, as I said, in this moment in time, yeah. with this particular player, maybe it was okay. Philosophically speaking, I'm of the opinion that you know that the head coach should make that decision. It's not like you know. I'll give I'll give you an example. Yeah. If there's someone on our staff, right, that changes, I like the fact from time to time when I'm consulted. I now I never get to make the final decision. The difference is I'm under contract for a period of time. The players that you consult are not, you know, and so it's a it's a whole different thing than that. You know, if you were consulting someone about a job at your company and you I mean, now, if it's a recruiting thing, you want to keep them. But, you know, you know, this guy's leaving, you know, or this man or woman, they're leaving. You're going to say, who who do you who do you want me to hire? You know, and I, I know I'm. I know I'm exaggerating the tone of that a little bit. I just think that, again, offering the caveat that maybe with this particular moment in time for Carolina football, this particular player, this particular decision at this juncture of Mac Brown's career, while, you know, Mac's doing great, but, you know, he's, he's, I think, 71. He's not 41, you know, so you want to get, you want to get it right here, you know, for this last run at Carolina. You know, maybe so, but I just think philosophically speaking, I'll I'll give you a quick story. Alabama could have hired Bobby Bowden uh, in 1987 when Bill Curry got the job. Hmm. Bobby Bowden went to Tuscaloosa thinking he was going to get the job, thinking he was going in for a formality. And he wound up in an interview that included a recent former player who is not really affiliated with it uh, anymore, but a recent former player was among those uh, evaluating him and he, and he would not take the job then. And so I, I think what I'm saying is you are also sending a message about who's running the program when you, when you, when you do that. But do you That's- think Reese that the world's changing a little bit? Well, like yeah, these players but, are more empowered. These players are, I mean, Drake Mace probably more valuable than your offensive coordinator. 
Like, I, I just think like the, the, the voice is going to be bigger because the value is more. And that I think that's a little bit of a market correction. Okay, fair enough. But the other thing that, that came to mind uh, about that was a, as you look at this value and you look at these things, I, I'm all for this. You know this. You know yes, that I am completely yeah. for the players, you know, getting whatever they can. That's been out of whack for some some period of time. But I don't like recruiting guys off other people's roster. Now, maybe, maybe that's no different than business now. So maybe I need to adjust my thinking on that. But there's also within business, in the business world, there's a period of time uh, contractually in which you can, not only in which you can move, but which you can speak, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what kind of business you're in. But mm-hmm. there's a, only a, a finite period of time, a defined contractual period of time in which you can uh, be directly approached, in which you can discuss other opportunities. All of those things are fine. I don't. I don't like it. I mean, there, there's no reason. I, I, look, you could you could quibble with Drake May's development in the late season swoon or whatever like that. But uh, you know, it's not as if he wasn't getting playing time. You know, and so okay. I think I understand that a little bit more. If somebody goes at a backup quarterback that other people think should be playing, I'll give you a good example from the other guy who transferred. I think it's different going after Drake May than say, let's say DJ Uyunglele had stayed at Clemson, and you go after Kate Klubnik, and you say, "Hey, what's going on there?" Still, probably morally questionable, or not morally, ethically questionable to do that. But that's a little bit different than going, "Hey." You know what? We're gonna starting quarter. We're just gonna we're gonna outbid you. You know, it's um, I don't know something's something's distasteful and seems unethical about it, and it has me to the point where I don't really want to hear any more coaches. I can complain about it because I'm not doing it, but I don't want to. I don't want to hear any more from the coaches complaining about it when they're doing it. You know, so so. What'd you think of Jeff Trailer? Um, he obviously had the viral tweet last week. Uh, let me read it here. That said, "Dear NCAA football, how does UTSA report Power Five schools who are trying to poach our young talent? How much evidence do we really need to make this not be a part of our game?" And that's basically a a, a threat to say, "Hey, I'm going to send you the DMs of our best players that are yeah. filled with you know." Uh, you know, coaches, recruiting guys sliding in the other side. And then there was Dave Clawson, who, who I think is kind of one of the elder statesmen at this point of our game, who I think is one of the consciences mm-hmm. of it. I mean, Dave Dave doesn't just fly off the hip. Dave Dave, mm-hmm. Dave speaks his mind. He's one of the smarter coaches in the, in the space. And his sort of viral quote last week was, let's not pretend there's rules. And um, in, in his thought is like, if, if no one's going to follow the rules, let's just make it open so we can do it too. Um, mm-hmm. Fair in, enough. In, yeah. in that in that sense. And my observation on this, and I want your opinion on that, is I essentially think with this portal now, and if you look at like the two receivers going to Georgia who, who mm-hmm. committed last week, I almost feel like it used to be the gap between the power five and the group of five. Now I almost feel like there's a gap within leagues. Like there's a yeah. gap between the top of leagues and the bottom of leagues. And if you're at Indiana your roster is just rife for a metaphorical Ohio State, Michigan, fill in the blank to come get you. It, it, it makes those bottom bottoms harder. So I was curious what you thought of those coaches clapping back a little bit. Uh, I I understand. I, yeah. I think it's uh, it's reasonable, uh, but I always wonder why the coaches don't police themselves. 
You know, they're, they're not willing to do so. It's the bottom line. They are not willing to do it because, and it, probably at its core, they don't trust each other. You know, they could go to uh, the uh, American Football Coaches Association and make all these rules and ethics and so forth. None of them trust any of the little bit of overstatement. Very, very few of them trust very, very few of them to adhere to any type of agreement they might reach in that regard. So as distasteful as it might be to some of those, including me, who are nostalgic about this, but yet is for player movement and is for a receiver who is unhappy at Missouri to want to take his chance to win a national championship mm -hmm. at Georgia. I'm, I'm okay with that. If that is what he wants to do, uh, absent inducements, but the answer, uh, absent inducements prior to going in the portal. Once he goes in the portal, they want to give him $8 million. That's up to them. I, I don't, I don't care about that. That good for them, but I don't, I don't like tampering because it's unethical and it's, and it's not good for the game long-term. And the only way out of it is contracts. I mean, unless there's someone who can present me with a better idea. Now the contracts probably can't be, or won't be as binding as what you see in, in well, th this is professional sports, but when, when you see in league oriented professional sports, NFL, NBA, major league baseball, probably won't be that binding. You probably won't be able to trade those contracts, but that's the only way out is some type of collective bargaining, something where both sides have a little skin in the game. There, there's a period of time and almost Clawson's point, if they're all one year deals, right. Then they're then they're one year deals. You know they run from they run from when you report until one calendar year later, and then you got to do it all over again. And that's not very attractive, I'm sure, for recruiting coordinators across the country or for head coaches recruiting. It seems to be the only way to make it a more honest enterprise. Because one thing that this has done, the NIL, the inducements, the portal, it's made it a more honest enterprise in that regard, in terms of recognizing and demolishing, uh, to your point earlier, demolishing the myth that players don't have value. It's like ridiculous. I remember a coach saying, well, the only reason they really sell the jerseys or care is because it's got good old state U on the front of it, which Stop. is a preposterous, absurd thing to say. Yet a prominent coach said that a few years ago. Um, I don't want to put him on blast or I tell you, or you know, you probably remember the quote, but you know, it's um, that's an absurd thing to say. It's made it more honest that the players are making more money. It's made yes. it a far more honest enterprise. So the next step to that is now realizing that when you have value, you also have responsibility. And responsibility sometimes is living up to a contract. And and play, and coaches then would be not bound by any rules that the NCAA or the AFCA would make that they're going to ignore anyway. But now maybe now maybe you can get hauled into court. You know, if you because if you start messing around with a legal contract now, nah, maybe, you, you know, that might be more of a deterrent than anything else. So let me, let me ask you this. In all the years you've done this, how many cases of tampering do you recall the NCA successfully enforcing? I, I, I don't recall any. Yes. And, you know, so I recall one. Which one? It was in basketball. Kid named Torian Thompson had a really good freshman year at Syracuse. He was from New York or the New York area, and he transferred to Seton Hall. And they got Kevin Willard, and I think Shaheen Holloway was the assistant. And there was a, there was a suspension levied, mm -hmm. and that is somewhat obscure. But I bring it up as again, 
there may be a there may be a laundry list of tampering. But that in my time covering college sports is the one finite incident that I can remember it actually being like reported, talked about, enforced, and then there was a punishment levied. Torrey mm-hmm. Thompson ended up being a not that he never got better than he was his freshman year at Syracuse, and he was an eminently forgettable player in uh in the in the whole uh, in the whole grand scheme of things this and i say that not to knock him but this wasn't drake may right this mm-hmm. wasn't a guy who was all conference it was just a doo-doo transferred from syracuse to seton hall and they ended up getting uh it ended up getting rung up a little bit so but that's that's a long way to say like that is one of their and i'm certain there were thousands of different incidents of tampering in in, in that sense so i empathize with Clawson because you can you can see why people were emboldened because there's just sure. has no, there just has been no enforcement. And, and and I do also understand that coaches are going to get whacked if they don't win. And the best way yeah. to try to avoid losing is to get better players. That's, I mean, you can be a great coach, smartest coach in the world, and you're even smarter if you've got better players. That's just the way it is. I didn't mean to get off on this tangent, sort of the sub... Uh, subtitle of our podcast is talking of an undisciplined and I was just going to sort of bring that up in passing but then we <laughs> go off on that so let's talk some games but before that uh, I don't know if this is going to be any good or not because I'm not in mid-season basketball form yet but since mm-hmm. you brought up Syracuse for our YouTube watchers let me well what was the player's name again Torian Thompson Torian Thompson I'm looking okay. at a New York Post article from 2019 um Seton Hall was docked one scholarship and uh let's see here uh, three years probation, fined five thousand dollars. I love the five thousand dollar fine. Um, uh, let's see here. And Kevin Willard, <laughs> um, impermissible phone contact with Thompson's mother while her son. One hundred fifty four phone calls between the two parties. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, like that's you know that's you know I don't know the details of that. Maybe the kid was unhappy, but okay. Yeah, for the YouTube YouTube audience. And I got to work on this as we get closer to basketball season as a Syracuse guy. Tell me if this is okay. Yeah. 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 You know, Torian Thompson, he went there, never got really any better. Yeah. What do you think that means? It's, it's a little too soft for a Bam. It's a little too, a little too soft. He's got a little more of a snarl to him. And there's <laughs> also, if you're really maybe Mike, that's just when he talks to you. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, that's very fair. <laughs> Mike Hopkins does a great Bayheim, and there's always a nose wipe involved. So like you yeah, got yeah. a like nose wipe, not pick wipe. I want to be you know, very clear about it. You know, that. he doesn't, he doesn't do and this, I promise we're gonna go to football. Jimmy doesn't do uh day of game shoot arounds. As you Never. know, right? Yeah. He doesn't just doesn't believe in them. A lot of a lot of the old school coaches don't. You know, Bob Knight always thought a lot of them were silly and a waste of time. Jim doesn't do them. So I'm calling a Notre Dame game, Notre Dame Syracuse game last year, and you know I, I meet Digger and we're going to go to lunch, and uh, um, somebody tells me Syracuse is shooting. And I'm like, wow, what? Syracuse is shooting? So I'm like, I told Digger, I said, well, let's go over um, to the Joyce. I guess Syracuse is shooting. So a few a few guys straggle in. Here comes McNamara at some point. And I said, <laughs> and I said, I know this is not typical for you guys. I said, is is Jimmy coming? Uh, meaning not not the player Jimmy Bayheim, Jim Bayheim, mm-hmm. coach coming. 
And McNamara stared at me like I had lobsters coming out of my ears. <laughs> like, like, like he looked at me like, "Are you new here? What, what are you talking about?" You know. And it turned. They just have a few players come over and shoot or whatever. But Bayheim's always been good to me. I like Jim. Uh, he's he's still grinding, grinding along in in the late seventies. Hey, it's uh the week of the semifinals, and we spent all this time talking about stuff we could talk about in the off season, which is. Uh, which is my fault, talking of an undisciplined. Anything over the last few days change your judgment of what you think is going to happen in the semifinals, either the Georgia-Ohio State game or the Michigan-TCU game? So I, uh, I'm i doing breakdowns of both those games uh, like we have done on game day. We did it for Georgia-Tennessee. Uh, Georgia-Tennessee Georgia, and Michigan-Ohio and State. And then, uh, yes, Ohio State-Michigan. Thank you. Um, you'd think I'd remember. Because uh, I spent a lot of time on the phone. So it was interesting sort of hearing some of like the Ohio State post-Michigan, right? Because pre-Michigan, and I will say this, nearly half the coaches pre-Michigan, especially the Big Ten coaches, thought Michigan was going to win or had a great chance to win. And they 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 gave sort of very clear paths of, of victory. In the in the the summation of Ohio State versus Michigan was that Ohio State had a better roster, Michigan had a better team. Right. So coming off that and then ma- matching up with Georgia, um, uh, there's not a ton of Ohio State optimism. Do they have a chance? Sure. What are they? A, is it six and a half point underdogs? I think last I checked. Yeah, it's it's in that yeah. it's it's in that neighborhood. But it was just interesting to to hear the tenor change a little bit on uh, on that. There was a lot of Jalen Carter in, in my phone because remember mm-hmm. going into that Tennessee game, Reese. He hadn't played great. He'd been hurt. Remember, he got chopped against Missouri, missed mm-hmm. a couple weeks. And and look, he has a reputation in the NFL scouting community of sporadic effort, quite frankly. Now, mm-hmm. he has started to obliterate that with a really strong stretch run. But I really think that the people who like Georgia say it all starts there. And you and I watch Jalen Carter literally mm-hmm. blow up a program. From from field level when, when we sat there um, on the sideline in Knoxville that day. I mean, he just swallowed mm-hmm. Tennessee's offense whole. And there isn't a lot of optimism that Ohio State has the interior line power to really to really negate him. And it, it, it'll be interesting to see how you how you counter him. Right. You quick game. You go outside. Ryan Day is an impatient play caller. Right. He's aggressive for a reason. And look, he's been wildly successful. He's 44 and five. Um, But he is not an established the run guy. Right. Like that's just not the DNA. He wants to score in bunches and then score more. And are you are you willing to try to how how do you sort of honor what's going to happen in the middle of the field and still call the game that way? I think is a really interesting just dynamic of, of of how this goes. People aren't that high in Keely Ringo. I was pretty surprised about that because I'm going to do something that um, that matches up Ringo and Harrison. And now, obviously, look, he's going to be a top 20 pick in the NFL draft. So people respect him, his game, his athleticism. Uh, unrefined, I think, might be the best way to put it, which is just like there's a lot of there's a lot of talent and skill there. It's just not all developed yet. So I thought that was pretty interesting that if Ohio State has a path to victory, it's going to be 
their receivers against Georgia secondary. Now I know that the cynics who still tweet me about the, the Tennessee is going to score 50 comment that one <laughs> coach made are like, yeah, we've heard their corners aren't very good before. And their corners played great. They uh, were great that day. Yes, yeah. They were great that day. Now they were great that day too. Cause Hendon hooker was getting eaten alive by the, you know, by the defensive line. Um, so yeah, I think that game is going to be interesting, but do I still think Georgia is going to win? Yes. You know, like do a majority of the coaches that I've spoke to think Georgia's going to win? Yes. A couple of the SEC types from, you know, they're going to win by 20. I don't know if I buy that. I think that's going to be a pretty good football game. I mean, if you look at Georgia versus Kentucky and you look at Georgia versus Missouri, um, you know, there's there's some fallibility there that, you know, the Buckeyes are going to have a chance to, to, to take advantage of, especially because Georgia – Correct me if I'm wrong here, but Georgia hasn't played anyone with the same skill level of Ohio State. Uh, now, Tennessee had some skill. They just didn't have time to get him the ball. Um, there's an interesting football philosophy question. I'll stop rambling on this game here and, and shoot it back to you for your thoughts. When you have a player that dominant in the interior, how do you adjust to him? Like you can't chip a nose tackle, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't mm-hmm. like so it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea of how you help in the middle where there's not, you know, organic ways to offer help. So I thought that was one of the interesting, more interesting things that, that got, uh, that got caught up. So are, are you still, uh, you still on the bulldog bandwagon? Right? Uh, I am. I think they'll win both games, no matter who they play um, by a touchdown or more. I'm not on the 20 point bandwagon, but I do, I do see a path for them to lose. And I think um, against Ohio state, because Ohio state has the requisite weapons and it's a really interesting thing that you brought up in terms of Ryan Day and his impatience in establishing the run. I think that would be an exercise in futility because I think it plays into Georgia's hands. You're trying to be better than Georgia at something Georgia does well. I think Ohio State's best shot is to get chunk plays and to score mm-hmm. points in bunches and to be aggressive. But what's Ohio? Okay, Jalen Carter's a gargantuan advantage that might negate any other advantage you have. But you can spit the ball out quickly. You can help. Even though I wouldn't necessarily say it, C.J. Stroud strong suit, you can move the pocket a little bit. You can do some different things. Even, you know, in college football history, Steve Spurrier adjusted to shotgun and got Danny Werfel out of harm's way in the second meeting against Florida State. So they can do some things there. So then the next question, or probably the primary one for Ohio State, Where's your primary advantage? Well, it's Marvin Harrison. And not just because some scout doesn't like Keely Ringo. It's because he's Marvin Harrison. He, mm-hmm. He's got an advantage against anybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if they're going to send help for him, you've still got guys, even without Jackson Smith and Jigba, where you have the advantage. You've got to do that. You can't fall into this thing of, well, we're going to show that we're tough enough to handle Jalen Carter and we're going to slow it. You don't want to slow it down. As good as I think Stetson Bennett is, make him score 45. Not that he can. I think he can. And I think he will if necessary. I think they'll do what's necessary to win the game. But Ohio State's best shot is to keep scoring. You know, to do what Tennessee planned to do but couldn't. And to see if Ohio State's better at it. So I I think that I think the real fascinating thing from Ohio State's perspective is, are they angry? And and this kind of stuff's overstated, so I'll explain it a little bit. Are they angry or are they shaken by what happened against Michigan? Now, angry doesn't mean we're going to get them this time. It just means, okay, what fell short in our preparation? What was it that caused us not to perform at the level that we think we're capable and 
our attention to detail is such in preparation that we're because they're going to be everybody's going to be ready to play in a semifinal game once it starts. They're all going to be fired up and quote unquote mad, you know, ready to go both sides. That pertains to Georgia too. What do we do in preparation? What mistakes did we make in the context of the game? At what point did we let uh, the magnitude of the Michigan game, the pressure Michigan uh, was putting on us, cause us to make a mistake that allowed those defensive busts that kept us from uh, moving the ball effectively in the second half? What what did we do wrong and can we fix it? Or, Or do they feel like they did everything they possibly could and Michigan shook them at their core because they, you know, they sort of manhandled them in the second half. That's the fascinating question. Is Ohio State really confident? Are they really confident um, and feel like that they just didn't play their best game that day against Michigan? Or are they shake? And that that's that will de- I don't know. I, that will be evident to me after the first couple of things go wrong for Ohio State, because against Georgia, no matter who you are, or how well you play, something's going to go wrong You know, at some point. Something's going to go wrong. And how does Ohio State handle it when something goes wrong? First time Stroud gets sacked. You know, if on the second play of the game, Jalen Carter blows up the interior of your offensive line and sacks C.J. Stroud, he fumbles and, you know, and. Uh, Georgia recovers it, how are you going to react? Are you like, oh, gosh, we can't block him? Or is it, or or do you settle into your game plan and continue to play well? So here's a, here's one more point on, on the Buckeyes that I think is interesting. To me, the single biggest play of that Ohio State-Michigan game was the, the missed tackle on the zero blitz that allowed Cornelius Johnson to run 70-something yards. That was the biggest play. The second biggest play for Michigan was first drive of the second half. They convert a fourth and one, and then they get another first down, and J.J. McCarthy hits Colston Loveland for 45 yards. Because the that was, a, that was a tactical schematic advantage. Michigan schemed that ball up and had Colson Loveland. I, I could have caught that pass and, 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 and completed for the inside. I mean, he was behind the defense. That was a clear coordinator-coordinator mm-hmm. play call exploitation of the, of the highest level. And there was talking to some coaches who played Ohio State this year. There's some vulnerability in that middle part of the field for the tight ends to take advantage of. Now, when you're playing Georgia <laughs> – They've got some tight ends. Okay. They got one who's, uh, you know, who makes Gronk look small. And then they have another who is probably the second best tight end that I've seen in my years covering college football. I would say Kyle Pitts was just freakishly physically the best. And and Brock Bowers may be more versatile. Like he's different. Mm-hmm. He's not, mm-hmm. he's not going to be a top five pick, in my opinion, because he just doesn't have that like sheer physical dominance, Mm -hmm. but has there been a more dynamic tight end boy? I'd have to think about it. I'd really have to think about it. Um, So long way to say, you know, with the three safety look that Ohio state plays, can they not get sucked in on play action and get exploited schematically? Um, You know, that, that I think is really going to be uh, the, the, the biggest factor. How do they scheme up those tight ends? Look, Georgia's receivers in the grand lexicon of all this are just very good SEC receivers. Correct. Right? Like, and their yeah. running backs are very good SEC running backs, but there's not, there's no first round picks, uh, you know, like at least this year rolling out of those position groups um, in, in my opinion. So it's, 
can that can that scheme adjust to the tight ends? And you know, can you figure out enough on offense to put some pressure on Stetson Bennett and uh, and, and and see what happens? So, I, but I do agree. As important as all this scheme stuff we've been talking is, Reese, I really think is Ohio State a wounded dog? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, like, you know, Ryan Day's big thing is we were we were sick of people talking about the Michigan game for 360 days, and they didn't play with an edge that showed that. Now, after this month of getting, you know, beat up after losing your biggest rivalry game, do they come in with an underdog chip? There is some number that are like eight and two in their last 10 games as an underdog. Um so it, it'll be interesting uh, to see how that edge is forged going into the, going into the matchup. I don't I don't look at this as being a program crossroads game for Ohio State the way some have suggested. Um, Zero chance. Yeah, I mean this is a this, this is this is a time when as painful as it is. For your, especially for your most despised rival, why can't you just say not not fans? Fans shouldn't say it. They should be irrational. It's what makes our game great. But from a thirty thousand foot view, Michigan's good. Yeah. <laughs> Michigan Michigan hadn't measured up in the last few years. Now they do, and they've won a couple games. You know, and they've been to the playoff. They're good, and so now you have to try to find a way to to beat them and i think there was this this thing this feeling because ohio state had become so accustomed to just drubbing michigan and sort of having uh having its way whether you know with the exception of the 2016 game uh, very few of them had really been close even in the harbaugh era at least you know not terribly close and i think there was this expectation well if ohio state just shows up and does its thing well of course they should win as you heard from the coaches they have a better roster Michigan maybe has has the better team this year and has better team last year and they played better on that particular day. Sometimes you have to accept that you 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 lost the fight and you're going to go and and try to win the fight next time. And it doesn't mean that your program is lacking in some particular area. It just is just something that happens in competition. You sometimes uh, my dad always used to say, "You win a few, you lose a few. Some get rained out." You know. <laughs> You know, that's that's they've lost a couple. So what? And you use it to get better. What are the deficiencies? Was it just a game? You, just a couple of games you lost. You know, go ahead. And there's a certain arrogance there that is beneficial for a program to think that it's always about something you didn't do. And I think coaches should always answer questions that way because I, I see fans a lot of times after particularly favored coaches, prominent coaches, I think this is most notable and coaches like Ryan Day, uh, Kirby Smart is going to be, is will experience that at some point in the future. Nick Saban certainly has. And fans will react when those coaches lose and coaches explain in news conferences what went wrong. They'll say, why do they keep making excuses? Just say we got beat. And there's some truth to that. But the real thing that you, uh, that's why coaches get paid is to evaluate it from their team's perspective and figure out what they didn't do as well as they wish they had of where the deficiencies are and what they can do next time. And I think that there has been an arrogance uh, among the the people observing the Ohio State thing that somehow is, well, this is an impossible thing that could have happened for the Buckeyes to lose to Michigan had they not done something awful and played and played poorly. Sure, they didn't play to their potential. There's no question about that. 
but you also have to acknowledge that you're playing a high-level opponent. There is less margin for error than there is when you play Indiana, and then they they gave Michigan too much margin, or maybe uh, Michigan had the advantage and didn't allow Ohio State to take advantage of their margin for error. Let me ask you this playoff question right here. You brought up Stroud. You brought up Bennett. Uh, will be the second game in the playoff, two quarterbacks. If you had to take a quarterback, and I do not like quarterback win-loss statistics because football's ultimate team game, but if you had to have one of the four quarterbacks in the playoff to win two games, who's your first-round pick? Stetson Bennett. Yeah. I just – it is. It, it just is. He just Me is. Too. I, I, he – well, here's an interesting – question as we this dovetails together here so bear with me and and i don't want to turn this into buckeye talk our friend doug larry's uh very good ohio state po- podcast uh but i would imagine on buckeye talk they talk a lot about why cj stroud doesn't run the ball more mm-hmm. now you, you and i've watched cj stroud start for two seasons and it just appears these wide swaths of green grass or turf are in front of him and he rarely if ever takes them now cj stroud is not a dual threat quarterback. He is not an elite athlete. You talk to NFL people about him. They love his arm. They love his production. He's not going to run the zone read at the Mm -mm. next level. Mm -mm. Okay. There's some Dwayne Haskins there and like he gets back and fires. But at at the same time, is there going to be, if they're going to win this game, him, him having to get two or three third downs with his legs? Like, is there, is there a balance between acknowledging your deficiencies and just like going to make a football play. And I don't know. Have you noticed that about him, Reese? Is that something that has stood out? Oh, I don't. I, I think he's uh, he's not inclined to run naturally. I yeah. don't know what he'll run the 40 in, but I don't think it'll be great. No. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. so I don't I don't look at him really as a runner at all. But I think mm-hmm. that you're a thousand percent right. Uh, it's a game of first downs. Get another first down. Watch how games change when you convert a third down or even better yet, a fourth and short. Sometimes entire games change oh. because you convert those little bitty plays that in the moment seem insignificant. If on a third and four, if C.J. Stroud can scamper ahead for five and either slide or get out of bounds or, you know, he doesn't need to get hit. If he can just do that two or three times when the opportunity presents itself, mm-hmm. he doesn't need to be running zone reads. That's, I mean, yeah. he had the one long run against Northwestern when the wind was blowing 700 miles an hour or whatever. And, Probably people said, hey, look, see, he should do that. No, he shouldn't. You know, <laughs> he should occasionally, he should occasionally, instead of yeah. being ultra, ultra patient, go ahead and get the first down and then go back there and do what he does best again the next time. Maybe, you know, that that's a hard thing to do. Stetson does that really well. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, Stetson, and Stetson does that extremely well. Yeah. yeah. Between his big game chops, his ability to make plays with his legs when they present themselves. And his just rapid improvement. I mean, again, talking to some SEC defensive coaches who played him this year, and I ask, you know, what's the difference between last year and this year? They say he's playing freer. Like, he's not afraid to let it rip. Look, he's 24 or 5. I think he's 25. I think he's 25, too. So, anyway, he's an older guy. He's mature, and he's playing with a a free free mind. Is he the most talented of the four? No, he's not. Um, But I do think that – yeah. And I think, you know, this next couple of weeks will be an interesting referendum on JJ McCarthy because 
clearly the game he had against Ohio State was a, you know, was a monster breakout game. And that throw to the tight end, I really think, was a turning point for a lot of people's uh, opinion on him. Uh, the 45-yarder to Colson Loveland down, down the middle of the field. Because that was a play, you know, the book on him still talking to coaches is, well, make him play quarterback, make him sit in the pocket and play quarterback. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the reason why I even go back to talking to a coach who thought Michigan would beat Ohio State, he said he's going to make three or four plays with his legs that break your heart. And he gives them just a little bit more scoot combined with a little bigger arm. And this coach thought he would end up being a first round pick, which I mean, there's certainly you're you could start to build the case for that. He's not there yet, but another year in this system, another year of success. Uh, you saw how they cleaned up in the portal with uh, receivers and O linemen again. Like it's gonna mm-hmm. be it's it's an interesting strategy for 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 Michigan, but look look what they did bringing in the center from Virginia this year and and the success that's brought them. And you know, look, there's really good coaching there right now. There's no other way to say it. Their their mm-hmm. O line won the Joe Moore Award two years in a row with uh with Sharon Moore coaching them. He's been there two seasons. So there's there's a clear blueprint on what that program is going to be. And there's a clear identity of what that program is. And, and give them a lot of credit. It took them a minute to find it. But boy, have they found it and leaned into it. Yeah, for sure. And rising star in coaching too, Sharon Moore's. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's big no, time. There's the, no question about that. The second round pick, if I were picking a quarterback to win two games, you're bringing up McCarthy is there. I would take Duggan. And honesty compels me. I really wouldn't want this year the third or fourth pick. And that sounds like I'm really down on Stroud. I'm not. I think Stroud's got a chance to be a really good pro. And I think he's a he's a his numbers speak for themselves. He's a really good college quarterback right now, and he's got a chance to be a really good pro. I but this time, this but this Stroud. time next year, this time next year, certainly this time two years, I'm really, really bullish on McCarthy development. Now I'm not sure about. Now, you know, in in terms of being a difference maker, other than those those splash plays here or there, but I'm really really high on on what he's going to be next year or the year after. I think he's he's going to be terrific. Is he there now? Well, maybe maybe he's ahead of what I perceive to be his schedule. Maybe maybe they'll win a couple of games. Who I, I sort of favor them over uh, over TCU right now, but. Uh, I think that chance we have we've had precious few semifinal games that have been uh compelling and great. But I think this one has the opportunity uh to be that if TCU if TCU can use their outside guys, hit some big plays and mm-hmm. uh, sort of sort of if they can do what Ohio State couldn't do, you know, yeah. consistently, sure. at least in the second half. Yeah. Let me say this about Stroud. So actually was standing on the sideline on his recruiting visit. And I remember meeting him. Uh, he was with Quincy Avery, the, the quarterback tutor. And he ended up uh, committing there and enrolling. And early on, the, the worry about CJ Stroud at Ohio State was just there was – was he alpha enough? You know what I mean? And and I want to give him a lot of credit for this. Boy, has he evolved during mm-hmm. his career there. Mm-hmm. I, I have a vivid memory before the Notre Dame game. I had gone in early to, to do some stuff, and I, I was at their uh, – either their Thursday or Friday practice. And uh, I think it was Thursday because they do a thing work week done. And then a, mm-hmm. a player gets in front of the team and speaks. And CJ Stroud 
I was like, wow, I was blown away at the speech he gave. He sounded like a like a 35-year-old assistant coach with the way he was up in front of the team and he had a presence to him. I was like, wow, what, what from the from the kid I had met on the sideline, you know, 18, 19-year-old coming in from California on a recruiting visit, to the kid who stood in front of that team and held them. And he sounded like a preacher. I mean, he was mm-hmm. he was really engaged with a clear message. Um, you know, a really impressive moment. I was like, this kid's really come a long way. And I do think that this is an interesting moment for him because there is some skepticism of of him on the next level, um, just in terms of like, how will he translate and stuff? And I think there's a ton of opportunity for CJ Stroud to really seize the moment against Georgia Mm -hmm. to really go out and play like he had. I mean, he had unbelievable numbers this year. I mean, oh, yeah, it's it's terrific. They're cartoonish. And so. Um, there's, there's part of me that is like hopeful for him that he can, he can put that, you know, I don't think he was awful against Michigan, right? Like he had the no, first half, first half, it looked like he was going yeah. to do what most of us, including me expected, yes. you know? Yeah. So it's funny how one half, and, and I don't know if you saw his no. post-game comments that, uh, that mm-hmm. day, but he I just did. basically yeah. like, I thought that was, that was very big and mature of him to just sort of say, Hey. Look, people are going to say I've never beat Michigan. I've got to own that and live with that. Um, so I've an appreciation for his just maturity as a as as a person as he's gone through that program. And uh, it, it, it look, you're, you're shaped by adversity ultimately, right? And how this Ohio State team, Stroud, right down the line, have have been shaped in the last month, I think, is going to play a bigger factor into this Georgia game and the kind of edge they bring than any X or O. You know, I remember uh, being being at the Rose Bowl last year, and the disappointment was palpable from the Michigan game. And Utah had them on the run a few times during the course of that game, and CJ answered every Ooh. time. Now, Ooh. with that in mind, Utah defense was really good last year. I don't think it's even you know Georgia defense is not as good as it was last year, not as talented, but certainly really good. And in mm-hmm. my judgment, better than the Utah defense a year ago. Sure. But if but if he can do something similar to that, um, that would answer any question uh, that people might have about his ability to lead, mm-hmm. uh, his ability to rebound. I just wonder, it was only a week, so it didn't really have time to set in. But I think Ohio State, in the immediate aftermath of that game, they were already – uh, concerning themselves, perhaps, and probably even some of the players were weighing about opting out. They're going to play in this bowl game or that bowl game, and then boom, a couple things fall your way and you're in the playoff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that will be a factor because I don't think there was enough time for that to percolate. If that had maybe been another week or two and guys had started moving in different directions and fracturing, and then you had, oh, wait a second, and pull them back in, maybe things w- would be different. But it's really, uh, you know, it, it is an interesting dynamic for them. And then I've I've violated what I have warned about on college game day. I think it's because there is some drama. This is not about Ohio State exclusively. It's an interesting story. It's fascinating because there's some drama to it. It's fascinating because they're coming off the loss. This is this is about Georgia trying to go back to back. And everybody else is trying to play spoiler or breakthrough. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Ohio State's trying to be a spoiler. Michigan, TCU are trying to break through and mm-hmm. and win a championship. TCU, you know, for the first time in in eons, you know, sure. since uh, the Davy O'Brien era, or 
And with Michigan, you know, first time since 97 when they won half the title with Charles Woodson. You know, I, I think some undue attention, maybe even it's early, so I'll give myself a little bit of grace in, in that regard. But I don't think this should be all about Ohio State. And if it is, Kirby Smart will use that, I'm quite sure, <laughs> you know, to, to motivate the dogs. Because one of the things that's happened with Georgia this year, you mentioned earlier that they haven't faced this great dynamic attack or anything like it, is that they've had some scheduling things fall their way. That's not to that's not to diminish what they've accomplished, but they they caught Oregon early. I'm not so sure they wouldn't do something similar to Oregon if they played them now, but mm-hmm. maybe not quite 49-3. But you know they caught Oregon early, which was best case scenario for them. They got Tennessee at home, which was a great emphatic performance, and I don't want to diminish that at all. Tennessee was on fire, rolling the top of the polls, number one, you know, beating Alabama, whole thing, and Georgia put them in their place, right? I mean, they said, no, you are not ready for this yet. Um, but outside of that, uh, nobody else in the East, you know, they, I know they sort of stumbled around, slopped around against, uh, um, you know, against Missouri and against Kentucky. And even though LSU put yards up on them when the game was decided and probably irritated Kirby just with the final box score, they LSU was good and LSU deserved to be there and all of that stuff. But the team that was the biggest threat to them, uh, at least in terms of actually beating them, was Alabama. And Alabama didn't play well enough to get there. So Georgia... Georgia hasn't had the stage where people have perceived them to truly be threatened yet. And maybe that stage comes on New Year's Eve. And if it doesn't, uh, maybe it comes in the championship game or maybe they just flex their muscle and run through this thing and they go back to back and they establish themselves. I, I think they're already there, but they need to win the championship in order to be viewed as the preeminent program in the sport over Alabama. Uh, right now, they need to win the championship to do so. That I mean, speaking mm-hmm. from a broad philosophical term, sure. it feels like they're that right now. They've had enough success to be there, but if They've they don't it. win, the, if they don't win the championship, they're not that. That's fair. So they they have to win the championship in order to be that. And I think uh, I think that'll play right into Kirby's wheelhouse, and they'll and Georgia will really be ready to play. That's a storyline that shouldn't be relegated to second tier behind what are the Buckeyes going to do? You know, that's the storyline. Is Amen. Georgia is yeah. Georgia establishing itself by winning the championship, putting the final, the final piece of the puzzle on what they need to say, we are the program against whom all others in the sport are measured at this moment in time. They have to win the championship to do that. And if they do that, that I think they're already there that as we feel that way in the moment, but if they don't win the championship, then they're not really that. So they have to win the championship. So back-to-back national title winners. Rare, right? Yeah, very. In in my mind, and I'm going to look this up, Alabama's done it once in the Saban era. Mm -hmm. And the Pete Carroll USC juggernaut it it can be debatable how you define national title, right? No, they did. They win two BCS. They did not. No, they did okay. not. Yeah, they uh, they won. They were national champions according to the AP, I think one one of the polls in uh, whichever one wasn't in agreement uh, with the BCS in 03, But LSU won the BCS title in 03. Um, USC won it in 04 and then lost the game to Vince Young in Texas in 05. So they never went. They never went back to back. Nebraska went back to back. 
in uh, you know in in the nineties, ninety four, ninety five. Yeah. So, like again, it's a great point. Like that is the looming history here mm-hmm. that you know that that Kirby and the Bulldogs are fighting for, and others are others are fighting against. And I think we should take a moment to appreciate. And look, if they do win, it's a changing of the guard, right? Like it's mm-hmm. that like that it is Georgia has planted its flag and said we are the dominant program in college football we are the ones to be compared to um the better mouse trap has been built in Athens and they've probably used the portal a little better like they've just been a little more modern a little sleeker they've and they've done it without a you know a, a first round pick at quarterback I, mean, I asked a bunch of NFL guys this week does Stetson Bennett get drafted nah nope nope nah nope <laughs> Um, I'd, I'd take, I'd take a flyer on him. Look at some of these guys getting trotted out here. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's always one quarterback a year that I've never heard of who plays in the NFL. Right. And you and I got, we, we were not some like grand experts. We spent a lot of time in this space and we we, both of us, I feel like dive into the, the, the group of five and the other levels Mm -hmm. and pretty good feel. It was the dude from South Dakota who played um who was what team was he on but i know he, he he came in uh he came in of uh, the game the, the jets, jets game jets yeah, game, the jets the game. Night. yeah he walked in and i was like i have never heard this guy's name in my life yeah the guy pete and i will confess to having to hit the google machine again to refresh my memory from just a few days ago uh is chris stevler who yes. uh, he came he came into the game and my first thought when he came into the game was are they so upset with Zach Wilson that they're putting in a, a, a special teams H-back guy who who played a little quarterback in high school or something? <laughs> I didn't, and I looked him up, and I, you know, I saw, um, you know, I saw that he he played in the CFL. I'm not even sure he was the the starter, although uh, although they say that he, I guess, he was the co-leader in rushing touchdowns in the CFL one year. But to to your point about this, I mean. The Jets are turning to to Chris Stevler. God bless him for persevering and, and continuing to believe yeah. in himself and 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 playing and and really going out there and giving a valiant effort in that game. But if, if you can, if that guy can do it, why in the world would Stetson Bennett not be a valuable backup to somebody in the NFL? I can't, I can't imagine. I wouldn't give him a shot. Uh, you know, late round draft pick. You know, I mean, Brock Purdy twenty five hurts him too. It it does, but I mean, you know, Brock Purdy was Mister Irrelevant this year, and and it turns out to be pretty relevant in in his career. Yeah, but you're right, twenty five. But I mean, in this, yeah, but I think Jaron Hall's twenty five too. Yeah, they're quitting. They're they're quitting on Zach Wilson right now, and he's you know he's younger than that. So you're only looking at two three years. You know, here's my worry so, about Zach Wilson, who I really enjoyed in that 2020 season. Remember, obviously yeah. the duel. I think you were at the yeah. game. I was in with game day at the time uh, in uh, Conway, uh, mm-hmm. South Carolina. Everybody forgets BYU didn't play its normal schedule that year. Like yeah. they had to, because they're independent. Remember Notre Dame joined a league. BYU yeah. had the ham yeah. and egg schedule together. So it was like Troy. They, they scheduled that coastal game on Thursday. Um, I mean, it was a bunch of, you know, flotsam and jetsam type teams. Now he had a monster season and they had great skill uh, that year, but that like Zach Wilson was built on 
BYU typically schedules their brains out, right? Mm -hmm. They're usually playing. Remember, they won, I think, last season, 21, they beat like four Pac-12 teams. Like the joke was they were going to win the Pac-12. That might have been more. Well, they, 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 they did. I think they were five and oh. It's the yeah, it was. It was a, you know, so anyway, year. that's how they usually schedule. This isn't a criticism yeah. of BYU. It's the circumstance that allowed to this confluence of events where, and Zach Wilson just torched everybody. Yeah. And look, there's some talent there. There's some skill there. I'm not giving up on Zach Wilson, nor have I quite frankly watched him very much because, you know, um, I probably watch less NFL than you do. But, um, you know, if we're if we're watching a ton of NFL, we're probably not doing our day jobs very right. well. Yeah. Um, but I do know, boy, is he getting a thunderclap of criticism? You can just sort of catch that from social media and, you know, me glancing through the New York papers and everything. But uh, that that's what I think people forget about Zach Wilson. It's like he was a mo- monstrously productive against an underwhelming you know, set of teams. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be the year in which they had their most aggressive schedule in yes. the history of the school. Yes. And they lost it all. There were a bunch of Pac-12 teams, a couple of Big Ten. I mean, they played everybody that year and ended up not getting to play anyone because of the straightened circumstances um, about the scheduling with all of that, the restrictions and so forth. But, um, you know, later this week, Let's dive a little bit more into Michigan and TCU. Yeah, I think that's sure. that's going to be an interesting game for sure. And giving up on the quarterback is an art form. And as much as you know, I'd like to see in the NFL Zach Wilson get his second win. Uh, you mentioned earlier CJ Stroud finding redemption and sort of just circle back to the the very beginning. Uh, DJ Uyangalale uh, choosing Oregon State. I would like to see him have great success there. I do I do find that a slightly curious choice. Maybe, you know, talk about that a little bit more simply because they have uh, Ben Gobranson, who's been effective for them as a starter. But, you know, that's for Jonathan Smith and the Beavers to to sort out, I guess. But a lot of times, uh, a lot of times transfer quarterbacks like to find uh, the path of least resistance. And you can't blame them because it's a it's a very short period of time that you get to play college football and there's only one that plays in quarterbacks. And if you, you know, if there's no reason to go in and put yourself in a difficult situation where you say, well, I know that guy's the established starter, but I'm going to go in and show everybody I'm better that, you know, that's uh, that's an exercise in futility. So um, I, I did find that I don't know that Goranson is that for Oregon State, but I know they're you know they're high on him, and it's a it was seven a little one. You can't yeah, think a little seven and one. Yeah, a little bit of a curious choice for DJ, but I'd like to see him find success as well. So you know, yeah. we're you do wonder from the Oregon State perspective, and I'll wrap up on this thought. Do yeah. you feel like you were a dynamic quarterback away from winning the Pac-12? Well, maybe that and, might and, that might and, be it. Yeah. DJ, look, we probably spent a lot more time focusing on DJ's flaws than we did on what he did well. Do you know his record as a starter? Well, it it has to be good because Clemson doesn't lose much. Twenty two hey. and six. Yeah, twenty two and six. He he definitely got better from twenty one to twenty two. Adding the dual threat, thinning out, and being able to move a little bit better gives him a different dynamic than he had in twenty one. And again, his accuracy issues are his accuracy issues. Like that's not going to change, but. Maybe there's a better quarterback development available at Oregon State. Maybe. When yeah. when you uh, when you look at Jonathan Smith and Brian Linger, those are two guys who've handled some pretty good quarterbacks over the years. So um, we just I feel like sometimes in college football we just put guys in a box based off a small sample size. There's arm talent out the wazoo there. There's arm strength like crazy there, and uh, you know there's there's enough good uh, five offensive linemen return in front of him. 
Damian Martinez was Pac-12 Offensive Freshman of the Year. He's mm-hmm. going to be one of the best players in the Pac-12 Conference next year that's not named Caleb Williams. So yeah. there's a there's a nice like, okay, we're going to be able to run the ball, establish the run. They hope maybe that DJ's presence helps a receiver or two come there. Yeah. And like, you know, I don't know. I, I'm I'm excited. This will be the most hype beef team since like TJ Hushmanzato was there. Probably so. so. Yeah. And and quite frankly, like I, I enjoy just as someone, I think we talk about this all the time. We're not biased towards programs, but we want the sport healthy coast to coast. And we want TCU to pop up and become part of the conversation. Oregon State to pop up once in a while. Like it just, that's the, the, the majesty of what we do is it's just not the same every year, even though sometimes it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it may be, and it may be a radically different by the end of this season as TCU yeah. and Michigan and even Ohio yeah. State, they've won the playoff, but oh, yeah. certainly if TCU and Michigan were to come home with a national championship, that would be that would be different and it would be a monumental upset. Uh, Pete, we'll get together again, talk a little bit more about some of the bowl games coming up and not focus exclusively on, on the semifinals. Good talk this morning. Glad you had a great Christmas. Glad Teddy enjoyed the tree and uh, and and also glad that Sarah, one of our great producers, Enjoyed some cinnamon rolls and chili. Oh. See, I, I understand the complementary nature of those two flavors. I've never experienced it. I, I will admit I've never heard of it. But you know, I I I see where she's coming from with that. So we're gonna have when we get in the off season, maybe we get a few more guests. We're gonna have Matt Rule on, and we're gonna see if he has tried this Nebraskan delicacy, Sarah, of chili and cinnamon rolls. Matt Rule is a foodie. A lot of people don't uh, know this. I will tell you, if he hasn't, I guarantee you that he will. <laughs> after, <laughs> after, after hearing the suggestion, don't you think? When when he lived in Philly, he and Julie Rule, uh, some of their one of their better friends, was a restaurant critic locally. So they Matt knew all all the spots, all the spots. When I went to cover the draft there one year, I think he was already at Baylor. He was offended that I didn't call. To like get the restaurant recommendations. So, Sarah, your local delicacy <laughs> is going to face some tough critics. Are are you ready? I am ready. And you know what? We already did have a tough critic from the Food Network, Alton Brown, but he did it wrong. He dumped the, the chili on the cinnamon roll. That is not allowed. That is not how it's supposed to be served. So don't knock it till you try it, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Who is this? Why would Alton Brown? Uh, and I will confess, I don't know who that is. But if he is a renowned food critic, why would he do it wrong like that, Sarah? That makes no sense. You know what? I was. It sounds like he was trying to bash the chili and cinnamon rolls. He clearly did not go into it with an open mind. And that is my issue. What is this called, Sarah? There's a local name for it. Chili and cinnamon rolls. Oh, Oh, that's it. Okay. I didn't know if there was like some sort of combined runs in name. (laughs) <laughs> no, Reza is a name of a local fast food restaurant. That that's sells, like your Wawa. Yeah, yeah. It like sells chili and cinnamon rolls together. I know I promised to wrap up, but that brings up Wawa. And what's the name of the place? What's the name of the place you're saying, Sarah? Runza. Runza? Okay. Wawa, Runza, or something that I have experienced recently for the first time, this Bucky's phenomenon. Oh. Oh, I don't know whether I think it's awesome or awful. I mean, it, it is. It's like it's daunting. It's like, it's like it is. It's like the Disney World. It's like Disney World on the most crowded day of convenience stores. And 
okay, so all the food options and all the you know bad snack options and stuff like that, some of which are, are quite tasty. But then I can go outside and buy a space heater or a, a grill. I can buy who goes to Bucky's and buy and to buy a grill on the side of the interstate. Why? Somebody needs to cook some meat, Reese. <laughs> it's an amazing it's an amazing business concept, which, if traffic is any indicator, must be making Mr. Bucky, whoever that is, a gajillion dollars. So I this mean, is a great Bucky's college football tie. Uh, when Rice has in-state trips that they bus to, Mike Bloomgren stops at Bucky's and gives all the players 10 bucks. It's come on. Go really? nuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to like, say you're driving in North Texas from rice. You got to stop and pee at some point. Right. Yeah, so you, yeah. come, you give them 10 bucks in 20 minutes and say, do your business and buy a snack and get back on the bus. Hey, hey, right. <laughs> how, how, how could they have missed out? What, how could they have missed out? I mean, come on rice. All you got to do little back channel, find out the right number. Text Drake May on the down low and say, hey, Drake, <laughs> if you come to Rice, we'll give you a 10 spot to go to the Buckies. Hey, maybe that's what got JT Daniels there. <laughs> JT Daniels. That was, that was it. After, after all of the travails, JT, JT Daniels, the travails and the travels, JT Daniels has found what he's looking for, a 10 spot at the Buckies for the road trip. In the immortal words of the great Lee Corso, life is good. And I'll add the addendum if you've got a 10 spot and a trip to the Buckies or the Wawa. <laughs> I like Wawa too. Wawa's, Wawa's strong. We've covered some ground today. Yeah, we have. I mean, I'm out of Bucky. Day after Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the College Game Day podcast back later this week uh, to talk more about the semifinals as well as some of the other bowl games for our entire crew. Hope you had a great holiday and happy new year. And we'll talk soon. <laughs>